We're going to talk about Discipleship 101 this morning um, for a couple of reasons. And I want you to um, open your Bibles up to Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 42. We've read this over and over again, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It is a pivotal verse of Scripture in terms of understanding what the church is supposed to be and do. And it fits um, tremendously in our understanding of what a a church uh, transitional focus process for a church should be. And as a result, we're going to take a look at this and I'll explain how in a few minutes. In the back, in the vestibule, there are a couple of these little charts or little pictures. Um, they explain what is our model and process that we've been working or will be working or continue to work on through our transitional church process or focus. And you'll see um, this little picture here talks about biblical principles. And we're on this part right here. And we've, we've done extensive study in the Great Commission over some time and some sermons. And we're looking at the five functions of the church, a kingdom-focused church. And we've already worked on worship. And today we're going to work on discipleship, next Sunday discipleship. And then through the rest of this uh, summer and into the fall, we'll be working on the other five um, Individuals, biblical students and scholars have noticed in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through um, 47, of which our verse is clearly a part, uh, are pivotal in our understanding of what the church is supposed to be and do, and as a result contain five functions. You can find these five functions in these verses. Evangelism, discipleship, fellowship, um, ministry, and worship. Those are the five functions that are found in these verses. And we're going to be looking at discipleship today and next Sunday. The question which rightly would come is, what is a, a kingdom-focused church? And following that, why should we be a kingdom-focused church? What is a kingdom-focused church, and why should we be a kingdom-focused church? We're going to answer the second question first, more or less. What is a kingdom-focused church? And we've been doing that through this process. And then we're going to answer, or ask and answer the question, why should we be a kingdom-focused church towards the end of the message today? And hopefully, uh, through looking at these five functions of the church, we already spent time on worship and we're going to be doing discipleship, and as we get to the other ones, fellowship and ministry, um, that we will be able to, evangelism will be able to also um, underscore and, and solidly place a good foundation for us to be a kingdom-focused church. Um, there's a lot of things to consider when we ask this question, but why should any church be a kingdom-focused church? And the answer to that is looking at the five functions of a kingdom-focused church. That's our first point. Uh, the answer to this is that this comes directly from Jesus himself. The five functions of the church or the idea of being a kingdom-focused church. You could give us our first slide up there. There you are, the five functions of a kingdom-focused church. 
Jesus Christ himself told us that we should be a kingdom-focused church. And this is found in Mark, in the very first chapter of Mark. If you'll turn there with me to Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 15. Uh, Mark 1, 15. The very first thing that Jesus said that's recorded in the Gospels as he began his ministry in verse 14 and 15 of Mark 1. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Proclaiming the good news of God. And this is what he said. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What we learn from this is that the very beginning message of Jesus is that obviously we need to repent and, and believe the gospel, but the reason for doing this, the, the means for doing this, the circumstances that called for this to happen is the assertion by Jesus that the kingdom of God had come near. The kingdom of God was now fulfilled. The kingdom of God was started because Jesus began on that process that would lead him from his initial preaching to the cross in Jerusalem and to be raised again from the dead. In other words, God had waited through his historical relationship to Israel in taking care of them for the right moment for Jesus to come. Because God promised to the Israelites and to the world that there would be a Messiah. There would be the Son of the living God who would give himself as a ransom, his blood, shed for many on the cross that we might have forgiveness of sins. And Jesus began to say, folks, it's started. It's ready. It's here. And we want you to understand that and believe the gospel. The good news was that God had given Jesus as a little babe in the manger, and he began his public ministry that would lead him to the cross for your sake and my sake. That's why the kingdom of God was at hand. We want to be a kingdom-focused church because the gospel message is about the relationship that we are given through Jesus Christ to God. We are no longer outside of God's family if we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We are not lost with no hope. But knowing him as our Lord and Savior, we are now in his kingdom. And Jesus, as we said up here and sang, is Lord. He is the head. He is the king. He is the one who is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God in the working out of God's kingdom. So the early church, the church in Acts chapter 2, verses 40, 37 through 48 or whatever it is, in that verses are beginning to be the kingdom-focused church. The 
kingdom-focused church comes about because Jesus died on the cross and God raised him on the third day and he ascended to be in the right hand or sit at the right hand of the throne of the Father and the coming of the gift of the Holy Spirit has come to the church to make sure and to help us be, to empower us to be the kingdom of God, God's family, God's kingdom. We really don't want to not be a kingdom-focused church. That would mean that we would be outside of God's will, outside of God's rules and laws, outside of God's love, outside of God's mercy, and outside of God's grace. So it's natural for any church to want to be a kingdom-focused church. That's why we want to be a kingdom-focused church, to have that gracious and wonderful relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ and God our Father. Now the question would be, what is a kingdom-focused church? And that's where we look at these five functions. Here's what happens. Jesus dies on the cross. God raises him again on the third day. Jesus shows himself to his disciples. He tells them to wait, to pray, to wait. And then he ascends up into heaven. And as the disciples are praying and waiting, what happens? It changes their lives because the Holy Spirit comes. Acts chapter 2 at the very beginning tells us all about the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples and empowers them to be the kingdom of God, to be the church of Jesus Christ. Now, when we understand that, we find that the first thing that happens is that um, we have Peter getting up and giving the first Christian sermon in chapter 2 in the beginning. And then he gives the first Christian altar call. And immediately following that is the description of the very first church. I like to call it the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. But some people would debate me about that. Anyway, the description of the church begins in Acts chapter 2 in verse 42. And let's look at that because today we're going to take a look at this a little bit more closely. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Oh, by the way, let's go back to 41. So those who accepted his message, this is Peter's first sermon and the first altar call. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. You know, we had maybe 120 disciples. Now all of a sudden you have 3,120 disciples. That's the church, folks. That's the first group of them. Then verse 42. We're only going to look at the first three verses or first couple of uh, part of uh, words here. They devoted themselves. Who are they? The 120 plus 3,000. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. See, this is where we get discipleship. To the fellowship. There's fellowship. We're going to be talking about fellowship. To the breaking of bread. We consider that to be the observing of the Lord's Supper. So that's worship. We've already talked about worship. And to prayer, we talked about prayer being the foundation. We're going to get to ministry and evangelism because that's what happens in the verses that follow. They do ministry and they do evangelism. So here is the first actions of the church. 
If we want to be a church that follows the pattern that's laid down by God, then we need to look at these actions very carefully. Because Christianity is not a non-participatory religion. But non-participatory religions means you just sit there, you believe something, you don't do anything. We can't just be fans up in the stands saying, yah, 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 go God, rah, 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 right, go God. We have to participate in our faith because our faith involves a relationship. So we see these early believers working together in this experience to be the kingdom-focused church. So they begin to do this. It says there, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We're going to talk about that this morning. The apostles and the teaching, and they devoted themselves. So the next thing we want to do, point number two, is the teaching of the church. The word teaching here is a very famous Greek word, um, didache, and it means to teach, to learn. If you've been a teacher or you've been under teachers, you know that teaching actually is a kind of a group or a amount of things or ideas or values that are imparted from one person to another. This would mean that the teaching of the church has to do with everything that involves the church and what the church is supposed to be and what the church is supposed to do. This word is found many times through the Bible, including in the Old Testament, it's sort of reminiscent of the idea of God's law, God's Torah, God's teaching. Guidance from God, direction from God, knowledge from God is what the church is supposed to be concerned with. So we have Bible study because this teaching is connected to the Bible. Its value is in God's revelation of himself in the Bible through Jesus Christ to teach us all about himself and who he is, what he was doing, and particularly what he did in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. You keep your finger right there in Acts chapter 2, but turn with me over to 2 Timothy. Now you got to find 2 Timothy. It's way back there, right, right in front of Titus and, and Hebrews and before you get to, uh, to Revelation. But 2 Timothy 2, chapter 2, um, I'm sorry, chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 and 16, we quote all the time, but if we look at it in the context of a kingdom-focused church and studying the teaching of the church, it is very, very revealing and significant. 2 Timothy 3, um, 15 and 16, all right? Paul is writing to Timothy and he's telling Timothy some things he's supposed to do. In verse 15, he says, And you, meaning Timothy, Paul says, You, Timothy, know that from infancy, that from the time you were a baby, you have known the sacred scriptures. Now, these words, sacred scriptures, mean the Old Testament because this was what the Bible was for Paul and Jesus and the disciples, the Old Testament which are able to give you wisdom. They are able to teach you all about salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
See, the Bible teaches us about our faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we should study it. That's why we should make it a priority in the kingdom-focused church. Discipleship means studying the Bible, learning about it, understanding it, figuring out what it says to us. The Bible, the sacred scriptures, can give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say this rather famous phrase, all scripture is inspired by God. And look at this, it is profitable, or the word there means actually it's um, useful or beneficial or advantageous. It's a good thing for doing what? for teaching, there's that word, teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, teaching in the church, in the kingdom-focused church, provides us with the knowledge and later the wisdom and the skill set to do what God would have us to do. So we can be a complete person, not empty, not half grown, but all the way grown. So we could do every good work in this chart that you can get out in the auditorium or in the vestibule. These biblical principles inform the kingdom results. That's what Paul's talking about. You learn, you, you study the teaching of the church and you wind up then, I'm making noise here, you wind up showing the results, and that's what we want to talk about. So we find out that the Bible, the study of the Word of God, is important. It's paramount. It's central. It should be a central focus of the teaching of the church, God's Word. God's Word contains an explanation of Christianity and what Christianity is and what Christianity isn't. And there are a lot of people going around saying this is what Christianity is and it isn't exactly. The teaching of the church also should be what we call apologetic in the sense, not that we offer apologies, but apologetic in the sense that we offer what is true and what is wrong. And so we have so many cults and so many heresies out there that the church needs to continue to teach about that. It needs to have classes on what is the true church and, what, and, t and talk about classes about what isn't the true church. What makes a difference between the kingdom of God and what isn't the kingdom of God? And we have a lot of counterfeits out there, a lot of people saying do this, do that, and we need to study the word of God. That's why it's important to have your own Bible and not leave it at church or kick it around or whatever, but have your own Bible and you study it and you work through it, and you learn about it. This teaching of the church tells us about God. It tells us about Jesus. It shows us what, who the Holy Spirit is and what the role of the Holy Spirit should be in the life of the church, in our faith, in the life of, our, of us as individuals. It talks to us about church. It talks about who we are and our need for salvation, what sin is, and even what God is doing in the world now and in the days to come. This is all the Bible. It always teaches us this. And so therefore, the church needs to teach that 
and to be committed to that, not teach what other people say about it, but actually study it, to learn from it and to grow from it and let God use it. We sang about Jesus as the Word of God. And you say, well, how is Jesus the Word of God? Well, John tells us that Jesus was the Word. And in Jesus, the Word becomes flesh. And we come to know God through Jesus Christ. But we use that image of saying He is the very Word of God, the very testimony, the very purpose of God, so that we can learn from Him. And we have to study the New Testament. Now, I mentioned the Old Testament is the scriptures of Jesus and Paul and Peter and the disciples. But we have to study the New Testament because the New Testament tells us what Jesus did. And if Jesus is the Lord, the Messiah, the Word of God, then we study his principles. We study all about him. It was Jesus who actually said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we study the New Testament and the Old Testament to do that. Secondly, or thirdly, I'm sorry, number three, it says they continued uh, devoted or they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, this teaching is, is uh, the teaching of the church in a broader sense is the Bible. But the apostles' doctrine, in a more narrower sense, has to do with what the apostles, those who were with Jesus, understood of his ministry and his, the experience that they had with him and the work that Jesus did. And this tells us that the apostles are looking at the Old Testament, seeing that the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah is true, and then sharing with us the foundation for that. If you want to look at the apostles, the one who are sent, the disciples, in the more narrower sense, then you would start off by looking at the sermon by Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 14 through 36, and what Peter is trying to say. If you jump up the page there, if you're still, go back to Acts chapter 2, and you go back a couple of verses... Um, to hear and to see what Peter is saying in this verse. If you go back to 36, after he finishes his sermon, Peter says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty, with fact, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's the apostles' teaching. They're trying to share with us the fact that God had decided to do this all throughout history and that he had brought it to fruition at this time. What's interesting to note that he is telling the people of Israel, the people who are gathered there in Jerusalem, that this was God's promise from all history, all along in the past, that he would bring a Messiah. And who this Messiah is and what he did forms the very basis of the apostles' teaching. It's focusing upon Jesus and how Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of God's good news, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. There were other people who claimed to be Messiah, but they weren't. Jesus was the one that God raised from the dead. And this fact is the foundation of the confession of the church. If you remember earlier in the life of Jesus and the apostles, the twelve, 
they're walking around and they're heading up north, uh, a very beautiful place called Caesarea Philippi, uh, Banias. It's where a very beautiful uh, spring and massive fountain of water comes out of the side of Mount Hermon, uh, provides a lot of water, and in fact is actually one of the tributaries or the headwaters, one of three headwaters of the Jordan River. And it's very beautiful up there. And they're up there walking along. And Jesus said to, to the disciples, who do men say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And they're all kind of quiet for a while. And then Peter pipes up and he says, thou art the Christ. I mean, you know, an answer to who do you think I am? And he's saying, thou art the Christ the son of the living God. That word Christ there is the Greek translation of the word Messiah. So it's not Jesus's last name, okay? Jesus the Christ, Jesus the anointed one. The word Christos in Greek means the anointed one. And it is the word translated Mashiach in the Hebrew, the Messiah. He is, Peter is saying, Jesus, without a shadow of a doubt, you are the Messiah. And of course, Jesus said, Peter, you are the rock. We got a whole bunch of rocks up here, right? But then he said, upon this rock, meaning upon this principle, upon this confession of Peter that Jesus is the Messiah, he would do what? You remember, Jesus would build his church. So the foundation of the church is the apostles' understanding and their testimony that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the hope of the world. He's the hope of our, our nation. He should be the hope of everyone. And he is our hope and he is our Lord and our Savior. And discipleship is built upon the idea that he is the Messiah and therefore we need to follow him. We need to learn about him. We need to get to know him. We need to understand his teaching. We need to understand his desire and his will for us to live. So Jesus isn't just a nice guy who lived and died and God raised him again. He is Savior. He is Lord. He is God. He is our Messiah, our Savior. And we study the apostles' doctrine because the apostles came without an without a inch of belief to believe that Jesus is. With, without any kind of disbelief, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, you remember when Peter denied Jesus and he hurt, he was so broken? Peter was the one who recognized he was the Messiah. Then he denied him. And we don't want to deny him, but that's what the apostles' doctrine is, is that foundational principle that Jesus is the Son of God. The Bible, the teaching of the church is all about God and, and his work and, his, and our creation and giving of Jesus, but the apostles' doctrine makes a beeline right to Jesus and to affirm and to proclaim that Jesus is God's divine Messiah, the one planned from all along to come and to save the people, God's people, to save us from our sins. And that's the important thing for the church to do. It's nice, in a way, to talk about conflict management and relational theology and felt needs. I mean, 
So I can go to the, 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 the uh, Moses and the burning bush and give you seven principles on good leadership based on that. I can, I can water down the message a little bit and I can, I can tell you how to get ahead and I can tell you how and give you my opinion about what you should do in recreation and how you should do But that's not what the teaching of the apostles is all about. The teaching of the apostles is smack dab square in your face, whether you like it or not, that Jesus is the son of the living God. That Jesus died on the cross for our sins and God made him the Messiah. And we need to love him and follow him and keep his commandments and study all about him. And we need to make him the central focus of a kingdom-focused church and the central focus of a kingdom-focused disciple. And that's the importance of that. You might say, okay, well, what... Why should I worry about it? Well, the fourth point is that this idea of discipleship also tells us about a relationship. You know, discipleship, I could say I'm a disciple of, um, oh, let's say, I could say I'm a disciple of Mahatma Gandhi or George Washington or any other number of people who've written a lot and say I'm a disciple in the sense of meaning that I've read about them, and I like some of the things they say. But when we talk about discipleship in a kingdom-focused church, it means much more than that. It means more than just knowledge, because discipleship is indeed knowledge. We have to learn about God. You know, all of a sudden, God doesn't poof, put it in our brain, everything there is. We have to study the Word of God. We have to pray. We have to gain knowledge, but it's more than just knowledge. It's a relationship. And the reason why we can tell that it's a relationship, because in verse 42 at the very beginning, and we talk about these five different functions, but at least for the very first one, it says, when it says the apostles' doctrine and the apostles' teaching, the very first word there or verb there in verse 42 is that they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. That, made, that meant they made it a priority, not just a priority, but the priority. The number one thing to do was to study the apostles' doctrine, was to do fellowship, was to worship, was to pray. They made this an important, the most important part of their life. And as we read through the, gospel, through the book of Acts, as we see what's happening over and over again, they're praying, they're, they're teaching, they're learning. This is what they are. This is what they do. So discipleship isn't just something we think about. It's something that we are. It invades, it should invade all of our knowledge, all of our waking understanding that we are the children of Jesus, children of God. We are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And that isn't just a thing to say, oh, that's wonderful in passing, but it's a thing to be marveled at, to be devoted to, to ponder, to meditate on, because we belong to the kingdom of God. We belong to his family. And discipleship means that we are learning and doing and being. Not just knowledge, but action. Not just knowledge, but a relationship. Not just knowledge, 
but a deep understanding that the presence of God is with us through his Holy Spirit and through his precious son Jesus on the cross. All you have to do is go into the New Testament and you find these sections that, that occur over and over. Romans 12, 1 through 15, 13. Romans 16, 1 through 27. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and 1 Thessalonians. All of these contain what we call paranetic material or practical material where Paul talks to the believers, and it's not just about knowing some grand fact, but it's knowing someone who helps us live. And in that living is how we are to act and respond and be disciples of Jesus Christ. Not just to believe as a set of doctrine or faith. Some people talk about religion as a faith knowledge, but it's not just a faith knowledge. Our faith in Jesus Christ is a faith being, doing, walking, learning, having a practical and real personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what discipleship is, learning how to be more like him. The church at Antioch, as we continue to read in the, gospel, in the, in the book of Acts, the church at Antioch, um, people there were so much like Jesus that they called them Christians, which means little Christ. They were identified not by themselves, but what they were like, so people saw Jesus in them. That they imitated Jesus. Paul says, imitate Christ. Have the same mind as Christ. Learn of him and be his disciple. That's what being a disciple is all about. It means wanting to have and being willing to commit ourselves to a relationship through Jesus Christ, to devote ourselves to it. That's what the discipleship relationship is all about. The question, I guess, would be, are we teachable? Are we willing to be taught? Are we willing to learn? Are we willing to be committed to change to serve Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Well, we began the message this morning by asking the question, what is a kingdom-focused church? And why should we be a kingdom-focused church? And hopefully the answer to the second question, why should we be a kingdom-focused church, and by extension, why should we be kingdom-focused people? The question should be that we love Jesus and we want to be in a relationship with him and we want to keep his commandments because we know in doing so, not just the knowledge of it, but in the actual being committed to being disciples of Jesus Christ, we know that there is hope. And there is joy and there is satisfaction in the kingdom of God. To become part of the kingdom of God, first you have to know Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's meaning that you've asked him into your heart and you've asked him to forgive you of your sins. And you've asked him to save you, to free you from the bondage of that sinful nature and the bondage of the things that we've done before. 
To be a kingdom-focused disciple means that we have said to Jesus as well, I now will follow you. I now will trust you. I now will learn from you. I now will give you my heart because I love you so much that I will seek to learn and do and keep your commandments. And I will study your word so that I can be more like you, Jesus. More like you, my Savior, so that somewhere, somehow, somebody will see me and perhaps the things I say and the things I do, and they will know that I belong to Jesus. We're going to have a hymn of invitation, Take My Life and Let It Be, Consecrated Lord to Thee. Let's make this our commitment to being a disciple, that God might take our hearts and our lives, and through Jesus Christ, make them what he wants them to be, because there is really peace in Jesus. There is really hope in him. And there is wonderful joy in being a kingdom-focused disciple and a kingdom-focused church. Let's stand and sing, take my life and let it be.